Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us for the Psych Podcast. Um, I'm your host today, uh, Dr. Brian Dawson, and I'm joined by... Dr. Danny Hatch. Yeah, and today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, clinical psychology. Um, and uh, I guess, to a certain extent, uh, what is a clinical psychologist? Uh, so I guess it's a really good question to start with. In your opinion, what is a clinical psychologist? Well, it would be a psychologist that has an emphasis or a focus on... Um, clinical psychology, which basically is, it has to do with the treatment of disorders, uh, maybe in its broadest sense. And uh, that means a couple of different things, that uh, a clinical psychologist has options as far as treatment goes. Uh, they tend to focus uh, on assessment and diagnosis, um, and that assessment could be of all of the Axis one type disorders and Axis two disorders as well. Um, but then they would use a variety of tools potentially to, to create those assessments. They might use um, personality inventories. They might use IQ tests to establish, for instance, like a learning disability. Um, but that use of an assessment uh, is something that really differentiates a clinical psychologist to a degree from a counseling psychologist and in a much greater way from every other type of therapist that, that exists, um, their use of assessment. So, that would be that that use of assessment would be a kind of a unique characteristic there but uh but then in the broader sense it would be the understanding and treatment of uh, every kind of disorder so that that covers a whole bunch of things um so i think that's you guys do a lot yeah a bunch <laughs> a bunch um so yeah you kind of touched on it there so um, a lot of people come and they talk about that they want to do, they want to go into clinical psychology, but what they might really want to be doing is go into more counseling psychology, with, which does overlap, from my understanding, to a, a, a very large degree. But what would you say is the main difference between, say, a counseling psychology or a counseling psychologist, an LPC, and maybe a clinical psychologist? Because I know a clinical psychologist can be an LPC. But yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. Well, there's sort of two different issues here. One is the level of licensure, which is recognized by state. And essentially, there's just three kinds of licenses that you can have to become a therapist of some kind. That's a licensed clinical social worker, a professional counselor, or a licensed psychologist. Um, and the schooling that you get varies depending on those three things. So you could have someone who gets a PhD, say, in like counselor education, um, and despite the fact that they may have a PhD, they can, they can still only get a licensed professional counselor licensure. Uh, then the social work side of things, you know, obviously they would get their clinical experience and become licensed clinical social workers. But then um, that third level of licensure, which would be a psychologist, has the, uh, because of the level of training, the least amount of supervision that they have to have in the process of providing therapy for individuals. Okay, so that's, that's kind of sort of on the lower tier of, I guess, if you had to tier them of where you could go. Yeah. So, so what are the advantages and disadvantages of each of those licenses then? Well, the pay is substantially different for all of them. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, and it really goes from, and this may be a bit of, a bit biased, but as, as near as I can tell, professional counselors get paid the least, clinical social workers emit a, like a moderate amount, and then um, psychologists get paid the most. Okay. Um, and then, you know, and then schooling sort of dictates where you are going to end up. If you're getting a, a master's degree in counseling, um, then you're, you're going to end up with a professional counselor kind of a, a background. Okay. 
Um, but you also asked about like the, the different levels of schooling mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, so so in some cases uh, you have master's programs, in other cases you have doctoral programs, or even uh, the PsyD program. Yeah. Would you like to elaborate a little bit on this? Yeah, sure. So, um, and again, it kind of depends on the school that you're at, but but typically um, those three levels are clinical and counseling PhD programs, and then there are PsyD programs, and then there's master's programs that provide that those bottom two rungs of licensure, that professional counselor as well as licensed clinical social worker. But then the difference between the, the three PhD type programs would be clinical psychologists, again, would, would be the people that would be focusing most on the most on research and assessment along with therapy. Okay. Um, whereas counseling psychologists, I mean, a fair number of people would say that, that it's basically the same thing at this point in time. Although if there was a distinction, it would be that counseling psychologists do slightly less maybe research and a little bit less assessment. Um, but that's not to say that they don't do research no, or exactly. research isn't even, can't be your focus if that's the route you choose to take. Absolutely. I mean, and that's why I say, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I really think it's the same. I, although people would probably try to throw chairs at me or something like that <laughs> if, if, uh, if they hear me say that. But, but coming from my background is a yeah. combined clinical counseling and school psychology program, which is something we should add into the mix uh, mm. at some point. But, but given that... You know, I have a, a unique perspective to see both sides. And I mean, there really isn't much of a distinction. Um, but again, some programs will spend a whole bunch of time training people on doing assessments and, and little time on actual therapy. And that's more like that clinical route, mm -hmm. I guess, in maybe the most traditional sense. But really, I think for the most part, um, talking to colleagues that have gone to a bunch of different places, um, they all sort of agree with me in the sense that there's, there's like no real practical difference between the two. Then um, that's that difference between clinical and counseling. So when someone's looking for, say, a graduate program and they see, oh, it's a clinical program, then it's not just because it's a clinical program. Some might focus more heavily on research and some might kind of give more equal balance to both research and actually seeing clients. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, how, how could someone... If you could tell me, how could someone tell? Is it just by looking at the graduate courses that are going through? Is it looking at the entire curriculum? Yeah, so there are these models that exist. Um, and the most common one's called the scientist-practitioner model. Mm -hmm. um, and the models, I think, really dictate um, what kind of like emphasis they're going to have. And the scientist-practitioner means they're going to sort of give equal time to the development of your understanding of science and its acquisition and production, as well as to become um, a therapist, which is a tall task. I mean, it means you're going to be really busy trying to juggle those two fairly different domains. Um, and I, to be fair, I can't I can't even remember what the other kind of model is because I think it's sort of the fad right now to be scientist practitioner. So just okay. about every place that you'll look, it'll say scientist practitioner. But there is one that's um, and this would probably be more like for those PsyD programs, which I haven't finished explaining yet. But um, but uh, but those ones have like practitioner, um, more practitioner models, okay. and they have they might say something like practitioner professional model, so that their emphasis would be almost entirely on just becoming a therapist at a PhD level. Right. So uh, that PsyD, why why does the PsyD exist, and why do we have it? What's it good for? Yeah. 
Well, uh, that's a good question that I'm not sure I can answer as far as like historically. Um, I th my guess is that they probably came from um, a lot of the professional schools that just focused on becoming a good therapist, and they may have evolved even from like the different Freudian schools initially. Um, although that's probably a, a, that I might be misleading you there, but but I think basically what they do, their focus is on is creating people who are very competent therapists. Um, and they'll have some emphasis um, typically on research, although uh, the ones that I'm familiar with, they don't ever have to write a thesis or a dissertation. They just have to write um, like a professional paper and they, they may or may not even have to do any kind of independent research, like a study of some kind. Um, and then they spend a lot of their time just focusing on that other stuff, which is not to say that you won't be extremely busy in a PsyD program. It just right. means that their focus is going to be yeah. a little bit more on that side of just doing therapy. And I mean, but for some people, that's what they want, sure. and they might uh, be a little taken aback when they start looking into clinical programs and realize how much emphasis they do place on research when this individual really, a PsyD program might be more uh, applicable to them sure. if they really just want to be very well-versed in counseling and, and therapy yeah. theories. Yeah, I mean, I think if you know for sure that you just want to be a therapist um, and, and maybe don't have as many academic teaching aspirations, then that makes perfect sense. Right. Um, it increases your pay. It gives you training in how to use assessments, which is what really separates psychologists uh, from every other kind of therapist out there. Uh, and and then you'll be set up to be a, a professional practitioner of psychology, a therapist. Okay, so if you want to just kind of cover all your bases, you're saying yeah. go PhD clinical. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much. I, I think, and in, in certainly prestige-wise, that's the pecking order. Clinical is first, counseling is second, and society is third. Right. And and most people from academia sort of thumb their noses at the PsyD programs out yeah. there. Unfortunately. Be yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's just because, um, I don't know exactly why. I mean, they don't understand it probably, and 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 these people probably don't have maybe as much training in how to do research which is usually emphasized in like academic settings but but uh no i mean i think you get fantastic training in a lot of these places some of them are private schools and and i think i have um you know like my personal opinion is if you can get a chance go to a, a state school of some kind that's uh funded by the government because you can you have a better chance in that sense of getting out with minimal debt as opposed to at a right. private school, you're going to pay out of the nose to go to right. those places. So, and, you know, like for instance, when I went to graduate school, I paid for one semester of all of my graduate training because all the rest of it was covered. Wow. Um, and that's because it was a big state school and the, the people there were doing research and had grants and, and, you know, I was there their gopher essentially initially and you know my responsibilities increased Worked over time but but yeah for their research projects and so and because of that um, and then teaching some classes along the side I was able to to get through school with like almost no no debt that and the fact that my my wife worked and was the best scholarship ever but yeah so you're saying get married <laughs> no um so yeah kind of tell us a little bit more about your your journey uh, to get to where you are now. I mean, you teach here, but how was it getting into graduate school? What made you decide to go into clinical psychology versus the others? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I don't know. I, I, this is how I, one of the things I coach people on when they're writing their personal statements. But but for me, it's sort of like there's a good chance if you're going and if you want to be a therapist that at some level, you know, people talk to you and you find yourself listening to problems. And, I you know, I found myself in a similar position as that. 
And, uh, and there were several times when someone would talk to me about something pretty serious and, and I'd be like, I have no idea what to tell you. <laughs> right. I just don't know what to do. Sometimes that, yeah. That's yeah, hard. I mean, that just, it just is hard. And, and those are the moments when I really thought, hey, I need to get more training in what, what I should say or what I could say that would be more, that would be better, right? That would actually help this person. And, and those are the kinds of moments that I help people think about as they prepare their professional statements. And those are the kinds of things that led me to believe that I wanted to get more training and, and get like a graduate degree in this area. So then I started exploring programs and thought, um, you know, kind of like Top Gun, the best of the best. Uh, right. I wanted to do the clinical side of things. But, but luckily, I mean, I applied to, I think I picked uh, seven schools total to apply to all across the country, um, several in the, the state, home state that I was from. But, but uh, I sort of fortuitously stumbled across this combined clinical counseling school program and they basically had just like three different tracks that you could take um, with the primary difference being if you wanted to get uh, a, a master's degree in school psychology, you could along the way. Um, and I guess I should add that most programs now uh, are at least 75 to 80% as near as I can tell, um, just have you start right out in the PhD program. You right, don't, yeah. You don't start out in a master's degree. Yeah. And some of them offer like a, a master's degree in route two. Uh, but many of them, or I don't know about many, but but a lot of them, I know you you just get a PhD and that's it, uh, which cuts down on the time. Unfortunately, mine was one where I had to write a thesis and a dissertation, um, which increased the time dramatically, commitment-wise. But but uh, it, that was exactly what I wanted because I you know enjoyed and wanted to get training in that area as well. So I mean, it worked right. out just fine. But but yeah, I mean, as I thought about what schools I wanted to go to, um, it, it was it was guided by this premise that I knew I wanted to learn how to do therapy. Um, and at the same time, I thoroughly enjoyed teaching and knew that that was, you know, going to be part of my long-term career plans. And the two of them, I think really wed together nicely in this clinical counseling school program because they gave me opportunities to teach along the way. I got to teach a handful of introduction to psych classes. Um, as well as get trained up in research and then to, to do a whole bunch of therapy along the way. So it's like the perfect, the perfect uh, place for me in that sense. All right. Yeah. So to get, we, we talked about the differences of the licenses, mm -hmm. um, kind of what they're for. What about the requirements to get said licenses? So you're licensed as an LPC or you're licensed as a, yeah, as just, I'm licensed as a clinical psychologist. Just a, a clinical Okay. Yeah. So I wasn't sure if you also have an LPC as well. So yeah. No. But so you're just a clinical psychologist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes people will do that. Like I knew not very many because the, the tests are kind of nasty. There's all kinds of supervision you have to get along the way for either one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes people en route to getting their PhD will try to get licensed as an LPC because right. they can start doing some work. Yeah, and they can moonlight, sort of, so to speak, yeah, and, help and pay for yeah, and get get some money that way. But it's it's kind of difficult because you know the the supervision requirements and the amount of money and the tests that you have to take in, in the middle of grad school is kind of tough to do. Mm. So most people don't do that. But but yeah, my background is in um, or my license specifically is in clinical psychology. Yeah. So you're licensed here in Georgia, but yeah. are you also, do you retain your license uh, in your home state? No. No. Yeah, I don't have a license in Utah. Okay. Um, I, I, I'll think about it at some point. Um, so you had asked earlier about the what it takes to get licensed. Yeah, like how many hours? Two degrees, yeah. Stuff. 
and it's it's tricky. I mean, the licensure process is, um, you know, not something that ever, anyone really talks about when you before you go to grad school because no. it's so far down the road. But yeah. but it's certainly worth thinking about because it's it's a nasty process. Uh, so what happens is is you accrue hours basically called clinical hours in, in your program, whatever program that might be. And this would be just for the licensure for psychologists, um, which is, as it turns out, substantially more hours than, than maybe any other, not maybe, than any other type of, of uh, license that you could get. Right. Well, but, uh, but while you're in the program, and usually people shoot between 2,000 to 3,000 hours of clinical work which means that includes face-to-face client hours, which is an awful lot if that's all it was, but also includes um, all of the different uh, like assessments that you might give and the note-taking and writing up of, of the clinical work that you've been doing. And that's basically what those clinical hours are composed of. And you, you acquire something like, like I said before, anywhere between 2,000 and 3,000 of those hours. And then you you apply to an internship residency program somewhere in the country. Okay. And, and so this is like your second year, third year? No, this how, would be just as you're about to graduate. Just as, okay. Yeah. Just kind of figuring out that yep, time. Yeah. To, to be able to go onto your residency internship, you have to have finished all of your coursework, typically. Okay. Um, and, uh, and at least made, they all want to know how far you are on your dissertation mm-hmm. in that application process. But... I guess this is the bad news. It's basically like applying to graduate schools again, um, which totally sucks. Uh, So, because it's a really competitive process, there are um, a limited number of these internship places. And and typically the ratio is something like uh, for every three applicants, there's only one spot. Oh, wow. Which makes it a, kind of a, a, a crappy process because the whole bunch of people aren't going to get in right. and they're going to have to reapply the next year, right. which is even more challenging for them because it's just delaying stuff. Um, but but basically, um, it's like applying to grad school, so you're going to pick different programs that offer further training in a particular area. And these residency internships, they have to be APA approved or else they're, they don't they almost don't even count if they're not APA approved okay. for for individual states' licenses afterwards. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so then you apply to a bunch, and I think I picked uh, I think I picked twelve places to apply to, um, and you can there are a variety of settings you can pick. Uh, lots of people go to hospitals, for instance, and do their residency there. Lots of people go to um, different clinics. Uh, lots of people go to different university counseling centers. And then there are even ones that are what are called consortiums that, that sort of like a, like a VA hospital teams up with a couple other small clinics and maybe a university research project, and then they create a consortium that gets APA approved. Okay. Um, so you really have a bunch of different options. And, and at that point, it really is all about deciding professionally which direction you want to go, like right. where you want to specialize in. So Because how many hours are you doing here? Well, at, at the internship, uh, APA requires that you get a minimum of 2,000 face-to-face hours. Right. Or not face-to-face, but a minimum of 2,000 clinical hours. Okay. And uh, I think 700 of those have to be face-to-face client hours. Okay. So, um, so during that time, you're, you're, uh, you're pretty busy, but you're, you're really honing in on the, the clinical skills that you really want to most focus on. Right. So for me, I knew I wanted to be at a university setting because um, I wanted to have an opportunity to, to teach another class. 
and I liked the counseling center approach um, uh, just because I enjoyed working with students and, and that was a particular focus of mine. Mm-hmm. And then the, the third thing that I was really interested in was uh, couples therapy, which is a, a tall order uh, when it comes to finding a counseling center that does a whole couple lot of therapy couples therapy and students. Yeah, right. you're you're very broad and diverse there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there was enough criteria that it made finding the right school sort of challenging. But um, I ended up getting my internship at the University of Utah, um, and they do this tricky match process where you pick, you rank order the top places that you want to go. Okay. And if those places pick you, okay, then you get to go there. And so if it's they a, it's sort of a mutual thing. Yep, it is a mutual thing. Do most programs do that, or is it something that might no, just be everyone? Used to, everyone. Yeah, it's a universal now. Okay, that's a universal. Yeah, it's I the, wasn't sure. It's the same process. Uh, in fact, it's the same company that uh, uh, like medical physicians use to match for their residency for programs. Residency. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, it, and that's a nasty process. Do you interview? Did you interview at each yeah. of those twelve? Yep. Those twelve schools. Yeah. Or? Well, they they don't all give you interviews, right. uh, but potentially you would, um, and then. And so I think I went to, let's see, I, I must have gone to about <clears throat> seven different places. Wow, yeah. Um, and I was all over the place. I mean, one in Texas, there was a, a couple in uh, Missouri. Um, I ended up in one in Illinois, uh, and then and then three in Utah. So during this period, uh, <coughs> you got to stay in Utah, luckily enough, but if yeah. you'd gotten to Texas or Illinois or Missouri, um, pay-wise, do you... Do you get paid during these 2,000 hours a little yeah, bit enough sort to of. sort of live yeah. on? Cause... Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's it's sort of like standard graduate okay. school fare, but but I think the best places you were making about $20,000 a year. Yeah, that sounds a lot like graduate school fare. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, and but that was the best. I mean, there are a lot of them that were unpaid, um, and those ones obviously aren't as popular, but some of them were like great training opportunities, so it's kind of a trade-off. Right. But uh, depends on your own personal situation. Yep. I mean, on average, I think you could anticipate for that year between sixteen and twenty thousand dollars. Right. Is all. Right. And yeah, these numbers may change in years, but sure. Yeah. For now. Kind of the idea. You do get paid at least somewhat. Yeah. Um, usually, all internships do. Right. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So then, out of that, um, once I finished the internship year, you know, the the cohort that I was with, there were four of us at this counseling center. There was a girl from Michigan, a girl from Penn State, and then a girl from um, a Texas Women's College. And we all ended up in fairly different places out of there. Uh, I'm familiar. Two of us were going to go into academia. Um, and I know the, 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 one, the one woman, she ended up uh, at a, a, a smaller sort of liberal arts college, kind of like I'm at, uh, in Penn State or in, the, in Pennsylvania. And then uh, the other two, uh, one of them went purely research, and uh, and she does some research at, in in a at a school in Michigan, uh, and then and then one of them ended up in a counseling center as a as a psychologist at a counseling okay. center in a university. So I mean, like, totally different outcomes right. there. Um, and again, I, I you know that was that was getting at part of your question that you had earlier as far as like possible job outcomes and, yeah. and such yeah so it's not it's not pigeonholing you just because of that program your program enabled each of you depending on your residencies where you wanted yeah. to go so yeah. i assume they chose residencies that were down those paths of yeah. research of counseling of of kind of the smaller school type aspect yeah yeah i mean and and uh 
Yeah, it really depends on what kind of career that you want to go after. I mean, there are really a whole lot of options. Um, you know, like I've got a friend who's a military psychologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got another buddy who's uh, he's the chief psychologist for uh, a hospital, but essentially for the entire reservation uh, that he's at for the Navajo Nation in, uh, in New Mexico. Uh, another friend of mine works at a behavioral hospital. Um, I'm, so it, you can end up in a whole bunch of places, and I'm teaching in a college and, and seeing clients on the side. Right. And, and So you're still able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it, that was, for me, the ideal, right? That was sort of the, the brass plum of sorts that I wanted. I loved teaching because I, I just have a, a blast teaching, um, and, and I enjoy research. Um, uh, I should say, you know, not quite as much as I enjoy therapy and, and teaching, but um, it certainly is something that's a priority. Um, mm-hmm. Especially given that it, it really guides the kind of therapy that I think most psychologists ought to do. That, um, and there really is an emphasis in the field for that. Um, using empirically validated treatments is an important idea and yeah. sort of issue. Uh, hopefully that goes without saying, but unfortunately I think it probably needs to be said more. Perhaps. Um, but I, so I, I digress a bit. But, but yeah, I mean, there, there are lots and lots of options that you can, you can follow up on. Um, and you're not really limited in that sense as to what you want to do. You could end up in anything from academia to working in a hospital to specializing in a particular kind of disorder uh, to doing purely just research like one of my colleagues to uh, being a military psychologist. I mean, this guy, yeah. you know, recently Major got, Clay Manning. Yeah, he recently got his, his uh, Army Ranger tab and uh, is doing clandestine stuff that he won't even tell me about, so I don't know. He talked to us a bit on a, on a previous podcast, not about that stuff, but uh, about what he could talk to us about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned that your interests uh, uh, also lie within marriage and family. Uh, mm-hmm. I know you're doing a couple of research projects on that, uh, the Appalachian uh, Marriage Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like to kind of tell us a little bit about that, what sure. you're doing, and kind of where you see this project going? You need more people? Yeah, we definitely need more people. Uh, so I have sort of two particular focuses right now on research. Um, one of them is this Appalachian marriage project that, that I've been doing. Um, and, and essentially, uh, I've, I've had a fair amount of qualitative research experience. I did a bunch of, of uh, work with Latino couples who were um, either bilingual or monolingual Spanish speakers. And, uh, and we just looked at what elements made their from their, that cultural perspective, what made their marriages strong, which was fairly unique in relation to, um, you know, the majority or dominant culture. So given that, I, you know, when I arrived here, uh, that same colleague suggested that, you know, this would be a good opportunity to look at Appalachian marriages, uh, something that, as it turns out, is a really uh, underserved population and hasn't had nearly uh, any kind of productive research in 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 that area specifically of marriage and family. So we thought a lot about it and came up with a criteria. We started to look for couples who had been born and raised in the Appalachian region, which is defined by some government agency, right. but essentially from Forsyth County all the way up until you know, like Maine. Right. Um, yeah. But we were looking at this southern region in particular that includes the northern part of Alabama and Georgia and a little bit of North Carolina. And so they had to be born and raised in that area. Uh, then they had to have, have spent the majority of their life in this area. They had to have a good marriage. Um, and and uh, 
what's, is, what's a good marriage? Yeah, that's tricky. Because um, it's pretty subjective. But in essence, uh, they had to be identified by some community member as having some kind of an ideal marriage. Okay. Um, and and we're measuring that as well. I mean, we're using the mixed method approach. So we're collecting some data using a very typical measure of marital satisfaction, just a paper pencil test right. that everyone has to fill out. Um, and then we asked a bunch of demographic information um, that covers socioeconomic status and racial background and kids and how long they dated and things like that. Uh, and then along with this qualitative interview that we're doing. And, and uh, while we just barely finished up with a data collection, or soon will, um, you know, we'll see how many of them actually had good marriages or not. And I'm sure that some of them probably don't have as good uh, but yeah, we what feel, you see outside of those four walls sure. is a bit different sometimes, yeah, I guess. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, and the, the triangulation of the satisfaction questionnaire that, is, that they fill out and somebody else telling us that they have a good marriage, right. we're hoping gets us to people who have the best marriages. Um, <clears throat> but we've, we've started to do some pretty interesting work uh, with that. Uh, two of the students in that project... Um, are going to be presenting at this the the upcoming Georgia Sociological Association conference. They're looking at uh, gender stereotypes in the relationship and how those things have changed over time, and how these successful couples have sort of reconceptualized the gender stereotypes that uh, from the very traditional stereotypes that they probably that their parents probably held to right. what they're doing now, and and uh, and how that may end up impacting their marriages in a positive way, this new reconceptualization. So from that perspective, I think it's kind of a, I, I'm, I'm excited about yeah. what's going to happen with that. Uh, and there are actually three other projects within that one. So we've collected all this data um, and uh, we have, so far we have 55 people who we've collected data from. Then the interviews, interviews for each person average anywhere from about an hour to about uh, two, two and a half hours long. Okay. Which means that when we transcribe them, they're anywhere from like ten to twenty-five or thirty pages worth of transcription right. for these interviews. And all of that's qualitative data. Yeah, all yeah. of that's qualitative Good data. data. Yeah. So I mean, we've got reams and reams of of uh, of stuff to sort through. But but these students, then you know, and I think the place for qualitative data, uh, maybe not the only place, but but one important and nice sort of characteristic of it is that that these people can tell us what they think about the, these issues as opposed to to me coming with my idea preconceived and trying to see if it fits they get to tell us in a in a more broader sense what they think in this case about gender stereotypes and yeah. how they're applied so it's it's nice um and then the combination of that with we can look at um with some of our quantitative data i think is going to provide some pretty interesting comparisons to make so the qualitative helps give a story, kind of mm -hmm. a context to what the quantitative data says, mm -hmm. and kind of helps you if you continue on to pull more research, to pull more people that, that are in this region. Yeah. Uh, kind of maybe what else to ask or kind of. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, what I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think it's going to give us a whole lot more questions that we can pursue in, in potentially more qualitative and probably more quantitative ways as well. Um, and in that sense, I think it, it, the, the two types of research, quantitative and qualitative, really dovetail nicely together when they're, when they're utilized together. Right. So that's one of the projects that we're, we have going on. The other one would be um, this drug court project that we're yeah. doing. Um, we've done, in a similar way, I, I'm, my colleagues in both of these two uh, 
projects is uh, Dr. Tony Chow. And, and we're focusing on, we just sort of had this fortuitous opportunity there. Um, one of the students uh, had made contact with the drug court judge uh, who was excited about us evaluating his program. Um, and so we sort of just jumped in with both feet. The problem is, is that neither one of us have a background in that particular area. Although we both have sort of related backgrounds that are applicable with my clinical background and, and, uh, and Tony's qualitative background and in sociology, but but uh, so it's been a pretty steep learning curve. Um, but out of that, we we interviewed uh, 39 participants in the program. Uh, we've also interviewed all of the counselors and the drug court judge and the sheriff and a couple other stakeholders. And uh, our focus really is on. I mean, in a nutshell, it's that uh, the networks that people are a part of either aid or hinder their ability to not recover yeah to not go back to drugs or alcohol relapse, okay. to not relapse and and it's tricky because um most of the time most treatments uh really just focus on these psychological variables empowerment helping people understand their addictions and where they've come from and and uh the disease model and and and, and so forth. I mean, they really just focus on very narrow psychological variables and not a whole lot of treatment really looks at, at a network level, what kind of impact it has that your, your friends and family and everyone actually who you right. associate with is all using drugs as well. I mean, clearly yeah. that would be a problem. It makes it really hard to, mm -hmm. to stay clean. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so that's really been our focus. Um, and, and drug court's pretty interesting in the sense that it marries, um, on the one hand treatment, just alcohol or substance abuse treatment with the justice system. So it's a, it's a powerful carrot and stick in the sense that they sign up for the program and the carrot is that if you sign up, all of them have like felony drug charges. Okay. And if they sign up and finish the program successfully, then that, that drug charge gets dismissed. And oh, they, they don't have a entirely? record anymore entirely. Oh, wow. It's yeah. not even like a misdemeanor. Mm -hmm. It's just gone. It gets It gets dismissed totally. But so that's that, not enough keep people in at yeah. a higher rate. Well, they, they, they're in at a higher rate. Okay, uh, I wasn't sure. But, but uh, you know, the 39, five of them have been kicked out. Okay. So... That's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad, but, but I mean, it's a, it's a pretty awesome carrot. But the yeah. stick is, is powerful as well, which is nice because, you know, it, it's tricky therapeutically um, to motivate people who are addicted to substances is quite difficult because... There's lots and lots of reasons why they started to use the substance to begin with and the reinforcing properties of the substance itself make it very difficult for someone to want to give that up. Right. But when you have somebody, um, so these people get drug tested six, seven times a week, potentially. Um, and if they mess up, there's a judge that says, you have to go to jail for 24 to 48 hours or else get kicked out of the program entirely. And then you go to prison, essentially. Right. So, um, and so these people, they have regular jobs and they're, yeah, they're working. So yep, that yep. 24 to 48 hours off work is, yeah, it's a problem. It's a pretty big problem. Yeah. yeah it's a, it's a big deal. Um, and it's, I mean, I think really it's more than anything, it's just pretty boring for them and like extreme <laughs> that that's the terms that they've used. Um, but, but, but then again, like it's really is nice. So there's teeth so to speak, to this treatment program. Right. And what we're trying to do, and it's, it's by all accounts, it's a, it's a pretty successful program. I mean, it's operated in, in I think, almost every state in the union. Um, 
but but one thing that we've noticed in our research thus far that they neglect really is any kind of attempt to help these people build new social networks. Right. What they're really good at is tearing down their social networks. So so basically, step one in any treatment program is you can no longer hang out with the friends that use and the family that uses. Okay. And so that's what they and they they totally destroy their networks in that sense, saying like and if if they get caught hanging around people who are either drunk or high or have any kind of drug paraphernalia, then they get in trouble for that. Wow. So like they're really sanctioned and they have to destroy those networks and which is a positive and important first step. But typically they don't do anything more than that other than destroy their networks, which leaves them at a powerful disadvantage because what the the best course would be is to help them find new networks to connect with. Right. And to a degree they do that, but they could do a much better job. At least that's one of our big hypotheses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they do have like um, anonymous groups and things like that Mm -hmm. that they could go to. Mm -hmm. But then they're still also meeting with other people who are still going through the treatment process. Right. Necessarily people who who don't have that possibility of addiction who are just pulling them up. Right. right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, That's what, that's, that's what we're going for. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit more of it, but my mind goes to um, Shawshank Redemption. Right? Yeah. Like where that guy gets out of jail. Yeah. And he doesn't really have anybody. He doesn't really have much. Yeah, he's, he's kind of, because he doesn't have someone there. Brooks. He's yeah, been Brooks, institutionalized. Yeah, he's been yeah. institutionalized for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that, that's sort of the idea. And and it's just, it's compelling, right? If mm-hmm. if all of my friends use, um, and, and I get rid of those friends initially, yeah. and I'm finally done with this fantastic program that taught me a lot of important skills, but I got nobody else to turn to, or very, very limited people to turn to. Right. And the people I know in this small community are all still right there. Well, of course I'm going to go back there. Right, yeah. Because it makes sense. It's from easy. A, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's accessible. They, they accept me. I mean, they provide some nice things. They just also provide drugs and alcohol, which for these people is kind of problematic. Right, right. Um. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah. So, but you are still you're still continuing to collect data for both of those, or you're going into your second round? Yeah, or, I mean, I think analyzing? they're both tapering down, thankfully, uh, with the data collection part now. Although, you know, I think we have one one administrator left in the drug court. We've got to do, okay. uh, and then and then we'll be done with that. And then in the mar- app marriage stuff, Appalachian marriage, we're uh, we're still trying to get um, our our first look at the data suggested that we had more middle to upper class um slightly more not not too many more uh couples but so we want to try to get some some like mid to moderate and low ses couples to have sort of a more broader representation of this particular area so i think we're going to collect maybe like eight we were going to do 10 i think we've got two already so we're going to do like eight more interviews and round it out at 60 and that should give us a, a pretty good representation of the at least at the very least the socioeconomic status right. of the area right. um so then what's next what's what what lies ahead yeah in terms of research well um any ideas i guess yeah this is the fun stuff so I mean, we have this really i i mean it's like a gold mine of of data ahead of us now um and uh it, well in the in the drug court stuff we're we're writing a book with students um We've we've got uh, through the students uh, in large part, you know, we've got about 150 pages of a manuscript started, wow. and each student or two are in charge of different chapters of the book that um, Dr. Chow and I work with them on. Um, 
and, and we'll see how that goes. I mean, the it, we've had out of both both of these uh, research programs, we've probably had I want to say like ten or twelve poster presentations that have right. come out of them. Um, and we really hope that we'll get um, some publications as well. If not this book, then at the very least some journal articles. Yeah, um, and, a lot. And the same thing we sort of hope to have happen with the app marriage stuff. And it's it's sort of that, that's the stage that I think we're at next is to try to write some stuff up. Okay. So um, I know we, we moved away from it before. Um, and I don't mean to cut you off. But yeah. I, wanted to, I wanted to get back a little bit to, to graduate school. Yeah. Um, so for, I, I've heard, and I could be completely wrong here, I've heard people tell me that, uh, you know, I want to be a, a counselor or a counseling psychologist because, like, people love coming and telling me their problems. And then I've heard from other people who are counseling psychologists, like, never say that in your personal statement. Or I don't know how you feel about that or if you think that, that that's a bad thing to say um, or if that should be couched a little bit better than just like, well, I want to do this because people like coming and talking yeah. to me. So what are the don'ts? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that is a bit of a don't. Although that sort of sounds like what I said before, but it, I think there's an important distinction. Everyone's going to say, yeah. um, like, I want to help people. Right, right. Uh, I, I think really everyone does. But sincerely, they probably do. Um, except for that, I think one way to sort of couch it is to say, I realize that I don't have the training that I needed. Mm-hmm. I think for any good personal statement, I think you got to have some kind of narrative that frames the reasons why you want to do what you want to do. Right. And I think they could be, in fact, probably often are because you want to help people. But but it's probably not enough to say, oh, yeah, I want to help people because I don't think that is enough. I mean, you have to have a, a rationale as to <laughs> yeah. why. So, so I mean, you're getting that same message across. Like, I want to help people. People do talk to me. Yeah. And... I mean, I think it does two things for you. One is if it's true, uh, then it sort of says that you have innate skills as far as relating to people, which is important. Yes. Uh, and then two, it recognizes, and this is probably the more important piece, that you're, you know, you have the appropriate amount of humility and desire and ambition to get the kind of training that actually would help you be a successful therapist and, and, and counselor at some level. So, so in that sense, I like the idea of saying something along the lines of, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, people seem to come to me uh, for this kind of stuff, and I realize that I need to get more training in it. Um, and that's why I've come to your school. And then at that point, I think it's a nice jumping off point to say why that particular school is the best school for you. Right. And that involves or implies that you know enough about the school to say, this researcher and this researcher are doing exactly what I want to do. And this person's clinical work is exactly what I want to do. And this is why I'm a great fit for this particular school. Right. So it's sort of like the, the segue into helping you identify the school that's the best fit for you, or at least that's what you want them to think about you, I think. Right, yeah, uh, you want them to see, like, you care about this school. Yeah, right, well, you why you're a good fit for that yeah. particular school, and I think that's a nice way of doing that. Okay, um, so I uh, was talking with some students recently, and one of their concerns was is uh, the master's versus the PhD. Um, so why might somebody just only get their master's in this field and uh, what are the benefits of that and what are the benefits of then going on and continuing to get your PhD? Aside from that, you know, you've attained the highest that you can get and then you're done. Yeah. Well, 
this is one form of thought. Um, so for what it's worth, this is what I think about mm-hmm. it. I think that if you know for sure that all you ever want to do is be a therapist, then getting a master's degree is a perfectly reasonable option. It's certainly a lot faster school and commitment-wise to get to that goal of being a therapist. Because you can get your licensure after you've yeah. gotten your master's? Yeah, within about three to four years, you can probably be done as opposed to like you know, six to seven, right. eight years. Um, Nine, ten. Yeah, <laughs> depending on what happens, sure. Um, I mean, that's a distinct possibility. But if you know for sure that that's, that's all you want to do, and that's not even a bad thing. I mean, I think plenty of people, that's a reasonable goal. And exactly what they want mm-hmm. so so i when people say that to me um that's the decision process if you if you think that's all you want to do that this is the right course i think uh, if you think you ever want to teach or or have some more options um or get some more training then then a phd route is the is the direction you want to go mm-hmm. assuming that you're talking about therapy only okay um but it also like the phd route gives you lots and lots of other options I think the higher you go up in degree, the more options you have. And the more doors are open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean you're you're not locked in. You've got a lot of different different things at your at your opportunity wise. But but at the same time, that's not to say that if you went and you got your master's degree and you got so with a master's degree, um, which of those licenses could you not get? Could you get all three? No, uh, right. you'd have to have the right kind of training, but. For like an LCSW, there's you know like particular schools. Right, there's get, particular master mm-hmm. schools, right? And then, but like, uh, there are a bunch of different schools for like the the professional counselor, like the LPC. Mm-hmm. But in order to be a licensed uh, clinical psychologist, you have to you have, have to, your PhD. Yeah, you have to have a PhD right? mm-hmm. um, or a PsyD or a PsyD. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have to have yeah some some doctorate level degree for those. Yeah. And so in terms of uh, if somebody decides to go and continue. To get their PhD, then there's a definite difference in terms of pay, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it it varies. I think master's level therapists can command around anywhere from like probably like thirty five to maybe like eighty dollars, something like that. Oh, an hour, such uh-huh. an hour. Mm-hmm. But that would be because you're exceptionally good at your job right. uh, and there's just a hugely high demand for it. Um, PhD can go anywhere from, well, it really depends on the area. Like, yeah. like uh, you know, one of my colleagues in Gainesville, she says around here, uh, around 70, 65 to 70 bucks an hour is, is decent. Assuming that that's what you get uh, after you, like from an insurance company right. or something like that. But but further down south, uh, I know personally of several people who charge like 165, 150 bucks an hour, sure. 140. Down to like Boca Raton and. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it your market is yeah heavily defined by, yeah. by where you're at. I, I mean, like yeah, Alpharetta, Dunwoody area, you can charge a whole lot more money. Right. Um, then you can say Statesboro. Yeah, Dahlonega and Gainesville. It's it's a slightly different story. Right. Um, but but yeah, I mean you can. You, usually, it's about double whatever the master's level people are getting. Okay, yeah, that's that's yeah. I was looking for more kind of general yeah generalization. So, yeah, yeah. if somebody just wants to go into to, they can get their master's, and then if they decide, they can still go back. They yeah, can apply for the PhD program. Right? Sure. Um, I think that's. I don't know. I wish I had the numbers at my you know my fingertips. Yeah. But yeah, no, I know a lot of people who have done that. Who've done that? Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's it's interesting though. I guess I should I should put an explanation behind that because the t people who I do know had signed up for school psychology master's degree programs, mm -hmm. um, and then they decided once they finished that that they wanted to go back and reapply to the school I was at and several other schools. Okay. Um, oh, so, so they went straight back. Yeah, they okay. went straight back. They didn't go practice for a while. Well, one of them uh, he was practicing for I think like two or three years, and then decided he wanted to go back. Right. But uh, but really for them. At that master's level, if that's your licensure, licensure level, go back. Going back basically means that you want to teach somewhere. Okay. That you want to go get a job as a professor, and and that's why you're going to go back, basically, because because your license wouldn't change if you got a PhD. Right. Um, at that point, unless it was a PhD in clinical psychology. Right, and then you get a completely different license. Right. right. Would your hours? Because your hours transfer over from what you've done could yeah, they apply towards that is it tricky it's tricky it's yeah I, mean, I don't think there's like a good answer yeah. it, it would depend on it's something um, to definitely look into sure yeah it's possible i mean like a lot of the classes like this happened i know just one person she came from a uh an lpc background um into my program and this was this program is a you know usually we accepted people right out of their bachelor's degree, mm -hmm. uh, and she had a lot of the classes, many of them uh, already taken, and and wanted to just not take them again. But the program basically said, um, you know, those those classes were adequate that that she had to take many of them again. Okay. Um, and that differs program to program. Yeah, that's though. just on a, on a program by program basis I would imagine and also how long ago you've taken yeah classes sure or... and you know like how close the classes actually are like, I just yeah they let her take um, well there's two people they one of them they let her take uh, she only had to take two other classes in that at the master's level okay. uh, but this other guy had to take almost all but but one of them so right. yeah I just I have students ask me like that oh, I want to go and I want to get my master's because I do want to do therapy but I don't know if yeah. I want to put forth that entire time commitment now, or yeah. the money commitment now. I can go for you know three years, and that seems good, and I can start kind of paying that off, and then if yeah. I decide to go back, um, I can continue on. Um, yeah, it's tr it's tricky. I mean, it it, I don't I don't think it's straightforward. Like you can certainly go back mm -hmm. for sure, um, but what classes would be accepted if you try to go back and get a PhD in psychology would be a totally different story yeah, totally yeah. different story but i mean yeah. it's something that people can do it's yeah not like people do it sometimes you might be starting all over a lot but uh, yeah other times it might be a little bit right. easier right um and so within licensure and all of that it differs state by state correct you yeah. only your license in the state that you're you're currently practicing yeah. in um and if you say you wanted to move to alabama or tennessee how would that licensing process change for you well, so they've they've uh, that there's a national test that everyone's agreed upon, every state's agreed upon to to accept. Okay. Um, and everyone has like a the same minimal passing score. So in that sense, that one test, the E Triple P, the exam for the practice of professional psychology, um, which is one nasty mamba jamba. Um, <laughs> people have a rough time with that one. Um, but that that's sort of the the gatekeeper initially for every state, um, and and then every state has some kind of jurisprudence kind of exam that would vary state to state. So there would be an individual jurisprudence exam you'd have to take, um, and then everyone has to take this this E Triple P, 
Um, and then every state has differing levels of postdoctoral, um, in fact, post-internship residency number of hours that you have to accrue. So the state of Georgia wants you to get an additional 2,000 hours of, of uh, supervised work, which means that um, outside of you know your internship hours, once you arrive in the state that you're going to work in, like in this case for me, Georgia, I had to find a supervisor who would be willing to supervise, um, you know, my 20 hours a week of clinical work on top of all the other, you know, like regular school responsibilities that I had. Um, and it, it took me a little bit longer to get there, um, to get the hours than I think probably most people just because, you know, I had like a regular job I was doing along, right. along the way. Um, 4,000 hours. Yeah. Yeah. yeah two. 2,000 hours, and then... Well, I thought you had to do 2,000 before, and then yeah. you had to do another yeah. 2,000 hours. Yeah, yeah, so. that's right. Oh, sorry, a yeah. total you've, you've total. had to do 4,000 4, just to get that licensure yeah. here. Yep. Yeah, the 2,000 for your internship and the 2,000 here. Right. And then whatever you did in grad school, which is, like I said before, most often between 2,500 to 3,000 more okay. hours. So, I mean, okay. really, you're looking at, by the time you get yeah. licensed in many states... Right around six to seven, eight thousand hours of clinical work that you've done. Um, that's comforting. That's good to know. Yeah. Well, so that is a very that's a big difference though between that and what master's level folks have to get. Okay. Which is why I, I mean I always say this to people, but I think some fantastic therapists have like master's level training. The only difference is is that it for them to get I think to be a, a very competent and excellent therapist it probably takes them a lot longer and meaning that they have they're sort of practicing on you and i until they they get good enough and, and, and it's basically just amount of experience that they've had so right. to get their six to eight thousand hours they're getting those hours oftentimes while they're working okay so i think if you're going to use a master's level therapist i'd get one that's got like 10 years of experience because then they've been they've been around they've, the block. They've, they've been vetted. They've, yeah, yeah, yeah. They've sort of made it right. at that point, and and then you're probably going to get just as good a therapy there as anywhere else. So then, is it is it a little bit harder, perhaps, for people who go through their master's programs and get their LPC to to find work? To sort of make it, um, just because of that, perhaps that that uh, the perception. Yeah, I mean, although I think the trend is moving more towards like the LCSW. Okay. Well, Obviously, insurance companies like it better because they don't have to okay. pay people that much money. Okay, yeah. So, so the, the LCSW, yeah, it gets paid less or... Than a PhD, yeah. The, what I mean, the, versus the LPC. No, no, uh, I think it's just the opposite. Okay, I think the LCSW uh, makes more. LCSW makes more. Okay. Because for their discipline, they have less supervisory commitments, if that makes sense. They don't have to be supervisors... Um, as rigorously because they've had more hours that they've done under okay. supervision prior to licensure, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, at least as near as I understand it. Uh, and, and they, they have, they also have a powerful lobbying uh, body that <laughs> helps them so that they, uh, they don't have to, they don't have to be supervised as much once they graduate right. and they can uh, involuntarily commit people to the hospital. Like psychologists can, they can 1013 people. Okay. Uh, which L LPCs cannot do, okay. and, and and won't ever be able to do unless you know they change the law or something. Right. So LCSW uh, does open a few more doors. Yeah, than just it does. Your LPC. Mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely something to think about in terms of yeah. which graduate schools, even if it's at a master's level. Right. I mean, I I tend to choices. I tend to push people yeah. that way because it does give you slightly more options. Right. 
in IO psychology, there's there's far fewer choices, far fewer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, um, do you have any other any other things that you want to talk about? I think we we've pretty much covered a good bit. I'm sure there's yeah. things and someone out there is listening going, ah, but what about this question? Sure. Um, so if you do have any other questions uh, concerning clinical psychology, counseling psychology, community counseling, anything that we've, we've talked about today, uh, don't forget to send us an email at uh, psychpodcast, P-S-Y-C-H podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, one word, uh, at northgeorgia.edu. Um, for this episode on clinical psychology, I'm Brian Dawson. And I'm Dr. Danny Hatch.